The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you do not tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and talked freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet people still came to him from everywhere. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Nothing to get the preacher's heart rate going, but like discovering that you broke your microphone during the last worship song. So forgive me for if I distracted you running up and down back to the booth. Hey, if you got your Bible this morning, uh, grab it and let's go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Um, Pray for me, for Kim, this week. We actually get on a plane tomorrow morning to head to Hawaii. We're going off to celebrate uh, a milestone birthday for her. I think with this many people in the room, I'm not allowed to say which one it is. Um, But we're also celebrating our 26th wedding anniversary. And so we've, uh, yes, we've got uh, a great week planned with some dear friends. We're so excited about it. So pray for us. Um, It's going to be a great time. You know, one of the things that I was really excited about at the beginning of this year, when we determined as a church that we were going to read through the New Testament together, we're, we're reading through the New Testament one chapter every day, every weekday, and we're going all the way from Matthew to Revelation over the course of this year. And one of the things that really excited me about that was that we would literally be on the same page with one another as we're reading through the, the New Testament. And, and On Thursday, if you did your reading, you came across this little verse at the end of John chapter 16. And it was a verse that was just really timely for me. At the end of Jesus' farewell discourse, his his final words to his disciples, he says to them, I have said all this to you so that in me, you may have peace. And then he says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. And I think about that little, that little statement, in this world you will have trouble. And I have to believe that it's at least in contention with the most easy to believe sentence in all the Bible, right? In this world you will have trouble. In fact, we do this, this uh, sort of old-fashioned thing around here from time to time where somebody will pray and we get to the end of the prayer and the person praying will say, and all God's people said, and we all say together, amen. It's, it's a way of, for us to together affirm everything that's just been said. And I, I think it's appropriate for this little sentence of the Bible. If, if I say, in this world you will have trouble, and all God's people said, amen. In this world you will have trouble. But Jesus says, but take heart, have courage. I've overcome the world. That that we can indeed in him have peace. We are troubled people living in a troubled world. And yet Jesus offers us peace. He wants us to have peace. And he wants us to make peace. 
We're in the third week of the Easter season. Easter is more than just a Sunday. It's a, a 50 day season in the life of the church that begins with resurrection day and goes all the way up to the day of Pentecost. And here we are in the third week of the Easter season in this sermon series, we're calling the story of life. We began the year talking about the story of God, a big overview of the Bible. Then during Lent, we talked about the story of us using Israel's story as a mirror in which to see ourselves. And now we're talking about the story of life, that Jesus has come not just to give us the gift of eternal life through, through faith in him, but to show us what a fully human life looks like. That, that we're able to look at the life of Jesus and see the kind of life that God wants to form in us. Last week, we talked about Jesus, the boundary breaker. Then we said that Jesus came into a world that was filled with all kind of cultural and, and religious boundaries. And yet Jesus consistently, persistently crosses over and even subverts the culturally and religiously imposed boundaries of his day. Jesus was a boundary breaker. And he calls those of us who follow him to be boundary breakers too. This week, we're talking about Jesus, the shalom maker. Jesus, the peacemaker. If you're new around IBC, this concept of shalom is one we talk about a whole lot around here. In fact, uh, a number of years ago now, I was affectionately referred to by one of my fellow preachers as the over shalomer. Um, that's, uh, that's maybe my second favorite staff nickname, uh, second only to Dr. Control Freak for my tendency to get a little bit too in the weeds sometimes. So uh, I, I sometimes am a bit of an over shalomer, but the reason for that is that I believe that's what the Bible is all about from start to finish. The Bible begins with shalom, it ends with shalom, and everything in between is God's mission to restore shalom. Shalom is translated in the Old Testament with the word peace, but it means so much more than our little English word can convey. It it takes a, a, a cluster of words around it to really get the heart of what this idea is all about. Shalom is peace, it is wholeness, it is harmony. It is flourishing. It is everything being the way that it's supposed to be. The Bible begins with shalom. The Bible ends with shalom. And everything in between is God's mission to restore shalom. This morning, we're talking about Jesus, the shalom maker. And what I want to do with you is something similar to what we did last week. I want to take several relatively familiar passages. If you've been around the Bible, you've been around IBC for very long, these passages will be familiar to you. But but what I want to do is I want to help you see the connections between them. The way in which Mark, in this case, the gospel writer, weaves the story together. And that while each one of these scenes in and of itself has a message for us, we step back and see the way that they fit together and find that there's a larger message that the storyteller is intended to convey. We, we see that the, the, the gospel writers are brilliant storytellers. And that in looking at these scenes together, there's a larger message that we're intended to get and live from. So look with me. We're going to begin actually in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. And as we walk through this, we're going to see six different scenes that Mark weaves together to make one big point. Beginning in verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is Mark's way of introducing Jesus' whole ministry. His his preaching ministry, Mark gives with this summary statement at the very beginning. 
Jesus goes around preaching and the message that he's preaching, the gospel that Jesus is preaching is the time has come. The great longing of God's people has now arrived. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Right? The reign of God has broken into this world that has been under domination by sin and death. The kingdom of God or the reign of God is, is simply put what things look like when God gets his way. Right? That, that's what it is. That ultimately it is God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And that the Bible tells us that one day God's reign will come in its fullness. But Jesus says, in me, the reign of God has broken in now. That this is the incursion of shalom. Right, the incursion of the reign of God into the reign of sin and death. And that's where Jesus begins his ministry. The declaration of the good news of the incursion of Shalom. Scene two. Scene two begins then in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, the brother of Andrew, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said. And I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. And when he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and they followed him. So immediately after we get this um, setup of Jesus' whole ministry, the time has come, the reign of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. We get the calling of the first disciples. And I'll be honest with you, for a long time, I read this, this little story, this scene from Mark's gospel and thought, this is just weird, right? Because it seems as though like Jesus sort of just walks up and says, come follow me. And it's like they're automatons. They just sort of, right, um, leave everything behind, leave dad behind in the boat. Um, as though Jesus is sort of doing the old Jedi mind trick on them, right? <laughs> and yet I don't think that's actually what's happening here at all. There's, there's actually a, a pretty straightforward cultural explanation for what's happening. And it is tied to the first century Jewish educational system. In the first century Jewish educational system, there were kind of three different levels of education. And uh, they roughly match up with our elementary school, middle school, high school. Not, not precisely, but, but close enough. And uh, what would happen, though, in their system, they would train under the rabbi. And at each level, when they got to the end of that level, there was a cut. At each level, when they got to the end of the level, some would be sent back to, to just join the family business, right? You're, you're not going on to the next level. But, but then others that showed particular promise would be invited in with the rabbi to that next level of training. Until ultimately, when they got to the very end, there was a final cut. And only the best of the best were invited by the rabbi with the words in Hebrew, Lech Akarai, come follow me. And every little Jewish boy grew up with this aspiration that maybe one day the rabbi will say to me, Lech Akarai, come follow me. And yet, what are these guys doing? They're fishing, right? They're, they've joined the family business. That means at some point along the way, they got cut. These guys are, are rabbi school flunkies, right? They're, they're not the best of the best, the cream of the crop. They've been sent to join the family business. And yet here we see this Upstart young rabbi, Rabbi Jesus comes to them and says, Lech Akarai, come follow me. 
And maybe they've heard some of his preaching. Maybe they've even seen a miracle. But they hear the words of a rabbi. And when the words of the rabbi went to, to those who would be his disciples, it was to be to come to be with me. We talk about this all the time. To be with the rabbi. To see everything the rabbi does. To, to, to hear everything the rabbi says. So as to become like the rabbi. Ultimately, so as to carry on the rabbi's work in the world. And when they hear these words, they immediately... I mean, Mr. Zebedee has to go home and explain to his wife where the boys are. But she's probably ecstatic. The rabbi said to them, Lech Akarai. And so they leave everything and follow him to become the foot soldiers in the incursion of Shalom. In fact, I think that's what you get implied in this little scene. When, when Jesus says, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. In the ancient world, the sea was uh, understood in their imagination as this place of, of chaos and destruction. And they spent their whole life on this particular sea, pulling fish out of the sea. And now Jesus says, come follow me and I will send you into the chaos and destruction of this world to rescue people from it, right? to pull people out. You are troubled people living in a troubled world, but I am going to recruit you in my rescue mission to be foot soldiers in the incursion of Shalom, to wade into the chaos and destruction of this world, to rescue people from it. That's scene two. Now watch scene three. Scene three picks up in verse 21. They went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come here to destroy us? I know you who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The putting these scenes together, where we see the call of the first disciples, come follow me and I'll send you in the chaos of the world to rescue people from it. And the next scene is, here's exhibit A. Here's the kind of people that I'm going to send you out to rescue. People bent and broken by this fallen world. And in this case, this is a man who's, who's suffered the oppression of an, an impure spirit, the forces of evil. His, his life has been tormented by it. He has been tormented and perhaps has been a tormentor. But notice the way Jesus sees him. Jesus sees him not as the enemy, but as a victim of the enemy. And Jesus restores him. Jesus liberates him. Jesus declares the incursion of Shalom. He calls his disciples to be foot soldiers in the incursion of Shalom. And he says, and here's precisely the kind of people that I've called you to reach. People bent and broken by this fallen world. That's scene three. Let's look at scene four. Scene four, beginning of verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and helped her up. 
The fever left her and she began to wait on them. I'm, I'm convinced that Peter's mother-in-law is a number two on the, uh, on the Enneagram personality type. She's the helper, right? Um, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's quite all right. Uh, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drew out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So, so we've seen exhibit A, the kind of people that I'm calling you to reach, the people that are bent and broken by life in this fallen world. And, and then we see more of it, just a, a kind of multiplication of this, that he's encountering people and healing and liberating them from impure spirits, one after another after another, beginning with Peter's mother-in-law. But one of the things that I find so interesting at the end of this little scene is that statement that he wouldn't let them speak because they knew who he was, right? If they knew who he was, wouldn't he want them to speak so he could, they could confirm to everybody listening who he was? Like everybody's trying to figure out who is this guy? They know who he is. Wouldn't he want them to speak? But it's interesting to note that, that here and elsewhere, time and time again, when Jesus does a miracle, he says, now don't tell anybody. Don't, don't tell anybody. I want to sort of pin that question to the side and come back to it. Why is it that Jesus would say, don't tell anybody? But let's look at scene five. Scene five. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went looking for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replied, Let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I came. So we traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So important to note, and John puts it right here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. All this activity is happening. So many things are happening. Jesus is giving of himself to other people, healing, liberating people from from demons. This is the incursion of Shalom has come. And yet, in the midst of all that, Jesus recognizes how important it is that he step out of the chaos and spend time cultivating that sense of intimacy with and dependence on the Father. That that Jesus, who is in the midst of the swirl of chaos, pulls out of it in order to cultivate his own interior sense of peace. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers, but that actually begins by cultivating peace in our own hearts. I've recently finished reading a book, fascinating book, a leadership book on on, um, conflict resolution called The Anatomy of Peace. Fascinating book that tells the story, a fictional story of of, uh, uh, a Palestinian Palestinian, uh, Arab man and an Israeli Jewish man who have made peace with one another despite the historical conflicts between their families, their ethnic groups. They've made peace with one another and now they're helping other people to resolve conflicts. And one of the things that they talk about in this book is this brilliant idea that in order for us to engage conflict well, we have to engage conflict well from a heart of peace. Jesus withdraws to cultivate that sense of peace in his interior life. I come back time and again to the words of Gordon MacDonald who puts it this way. Jesus knew his limits well. 
And we don't often think about Jesus having had limits, but Jesus knew his limits well. Strange as it may seem, he knew what we conveniently forget, that time must be properly budgeted for the gathering of inner strength and resolve in order to compensate for one's weakness when spiritual warfare begins. Jesus withdraws to the chaos from the chaos to attend to the peace in his heart, to attend to his relationship with his father. And we need to do that too. One of the ways that we sometimes talk about this idea of being shalom makers is to move toward the mess, right? The recognition that there's messy uh, situations, circumstances, people in the world around us and, and God's call on our lives is to move toward the mess. But here it's worth noting that sometimes the first mess you need to move towards may be your own, right? To cultivate a sense of peace and then to move out to make peace. It's like on the airplane when they say, put your own oxygen mask on first before you help the person next to you. The first mess you may need to move towards just might be your own. That's scene five. Now we come to scene six, beginning in verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. If you're willing, you can make me clean. Now pause right there before we read the rest of the story. I think in order for us to really get the force of the story, we have to understand something of this man's uh, plight. Here's a man who's afflicted by a, a, for, a form of skin disease that uh, receives kind of a, 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 a title of leprosy in the ancient world. Um, and and th- they understood this form of disease to be highly contagious. And so a person that was afflicted by this had to be removed from the community. They, they had to live outside of the city, outside the town, either isolated or with others who were also afflicted by the disease. They were considered untouchable, not only because to touch a person with this disease risked the possibility of the disease being passed, but also because a person with this disease was considered ceremonially unclean. And so this is a person who's gone who knows how long, perhaps years, without physical touch. Some of you may be aware of uh, Gary Chapman's famous book, The Five Love Languages. It talks about the different ways in which we give and receive love. And, and one of them, mine, is physical touch, that we express and we receive love through physical touch. I, I'm a hugger. I love to hug people. And one of the hardest things about living through the pandemic was that for a long time, hugs were completely off limits. I actually got a Facebook uh, memory pop up this morning from Shelly down here on the front row uh, saying, who's been fully vaccinated? I need a hug. <laughs> it was from a year ago, right? Because we went through a period of time where we just, we couldn't embrace. Imagine this guy's plight. He's gone who knows how long, perhaps years, without physical touch, without anybody just to, to hold him to give him that sense of human connection through touch. In fact, if he got anywhere close to somebody out on the road or that he would have to cry out when he got within a certain distance, unclean, unclean, stay away. And yet here he sees Jesus. He's he's heard of his reputation and he goes to him and he throws himself before him. He says to him, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, look at verse 41. Jesus was indignant. It's a very strange emotional response, isn't it? Jesus was indignant. 
Why is Jesus indignant? Is he indignant because this man's gotten too close to him? No. Right? Is he indignant because the man's begging him for a miracle? No. Why would Jesus be indignant in this moment? In fact, some of your translations don't even say that at all. Some of you may be looking and going, well, that's not what my translation says. Some of you have translations that say Jesus was moved with compassion. That makes a lot more sense, right? In fact, that's what the other gospel writers say here. When they tell this story, they say Jesus was moved with compassion. What, what's going on? How do we get two such different translations? Well, you need to know in order to understand this a little bit about what scholars deal with, with what's called textual criticism. Textual criticism is just this, this uh, reality that all of the ancient manuscripts that we have access to of the, of the Bible are all handwritten copies. And when you deal with hundreds of handwritten copies, inevitably you're going to find some variances. You're going to find a time when a, a scribe is, is copying and, and misses a word or skips a line. Now, the, the consensus among uh, scholars is that there is no major doctrine of Christianity that, that rests in any way on any of those variances, that, that most of them are all fairly slight. But the work that critical, um, text critical scholars have to do is to say what, as best we can determine, it's kind of detective work. What, what do we think was the original word that was used here? And one of the principles that guides their detective work is the principle that the most difficult reading is probably the original, right? Because you can think about it this way. If the, if the scribe is copying and he comes along and says, Jesus was indignant, the scribe kind of goes, wait, that can't be right, right? Or maybe he's read uh, Matthew or Luke and, and so he changes it. Jesus was moved with compassion. It's easy to imagine how that might happen. It's really difficult to imagine it going the other way, right? That the scribe is, is coming along and he's writing and he says, Jesus was was moved with compassion, and he goes, no, that's not right. He was indignant, right? So the more difficult reading is probably the original. Why would Jesus be indignant? Well, I think what we have here is the idea that Jesus is indignant at the vandalism of Shalom. Jesus looks at this man, this this beloved man, this, this man who's made in the image of God and has unmatched dignity in all of creation, This man he loves, he sees him and there's something deep inside his soul that says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus is indignant at the vandalism of Shalom. And I believe that he calls us to share his heart in that regard. That we know one day Shalom is coming and everything will be restored and set right. But until that day comes, something should rise up in our soul and say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And it should then move us with compassion. And so we see then Jesus' response, picking up in the middle of 41. He reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourselves to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, the man went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. I love 
this little detail that Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Right? Did Jesus have to touch him in order to heal him? No. We saw, we, we saw a story last week where Jesus healed a guy who was 16 and a half miles away just by saying, your son will live. But Jesus reaches out to touch the one that in that day would have been seen as untouchable because that's what Jesus does. He touches the untouchable. He loves the unlovable. He forgives the unforgivable. He redeems the irredeemable because that's who he is. And he's called us to follow his example. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man and says, I'm willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And then he sends him off with a stern warning. Don't tell anybody. And he says, go to the priests and give the sacrifice that you're supposed to give, but don't tell anybody about this. And here again, we get this strange statement. Don't tell anybody. And time and time again, you see it. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Why? Because Jesus isn't interested in drawing a crowd who will come to see the wonder worker. Jesus, isn't, Jesus doesn't do miracles for PR purposes. Jesus does miracles because when he encounters the vandalism of Shalom, everywhere Jesus goes, little glimpses of Shalom show up. It is what we sang earlier, foretaste of glory divine. This is what the world to come is meant to look like. Then we see the miracles of Jesus. They put on display for us what the world is supposed to look like and what the world will one day be. Not everybody, even in Jesus' day, got a miracle, but they're foretaste of what is to come. Foretaste of glory divine, glimpses of shalom. And everywhere Jesus went, glimpses of shalom showed up. And I believe that he desires for that to be true of us as well. That everywhere we see troubled people in a troubled world, people bent and broken by a fallen world, that we would move toward the mess to be peacemakers. Do you see how the pieces all fit together? Jesus comes and declares the incursion of Shalom. He calls his first disciples to be the foot soldiers in the incursion of Shalom. He tells them, I'm calling you to wade into the chaos and destruction of this world and to rescue people from it. And then we get exhibit A. Jesus heals many, causing these little glimpses of Shalom to begin to show up. And yet he withdraws from the chaos to cultivate that sense of intimacy with and dependence on the father. That in order to be peacemakers, we first must cultivate peace in our own lives. But then Jesus moves toward the mess, bringing healing and redemption, touching the untouchable, loving the unlovable, forgiving the unforgivable, redeeming the irredeemable. Because that's who he is. Jesus, the peacemaker. And in order for us to fully grasp this, it is to recognize first and foremost, he has come to make peace between us and God. And that's what we remember when we come to the table of communion. So I wanna give you just a moment to reflect before we partake of these elements. A moment to, to posture yourselves before the Lord and say, is there anything in my heart, Lord, that I need to bring before you this morning before we partake of these elements together? Let's take that opportunity now.
Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.